It's Monday, January 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new office has been established in the Pentagon to study UFOs. Spearheaded by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and tucked into the National Defense Authorization Act, the office is positioned as a national security issue. While many welcome this new office, some activists fear that without some civilian involvement, we could see cover-ups of vital info. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this, COVID at-home tests being sent to Americans, and Joe Biden heads to Georgia on Tuesday. Next, for the first time in nearly 50 years, the number of dialysis patients shrunk, not because more people were healthy, but because COVID struck. People with kidney failure and the associated illnesses are more prone to severe infection, but many people also neglected getting their treatments during the pandemic. And despite dialysis centers implementing COVID precautions, some facilities didn't follow their own infection control policies. Dua Eldeeb, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for how dialysis patients were the pandemic's perfect victims and how few people took notice. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. No, I don't think COVID is here to stay. That having COVID in the environment here and in the world is probably here to stay. But COVID, as we're dealing with it now, is not here to stay. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with something fun. Let's talk about UFOs. So right before the new year, uh, it was signed into law uh, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, the establishment of a new office to study UFOs. This was spearheaded by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. And, you know, she positioned this as a national security issue, uh, trying to find out what's out there, if it's tied to any foreign government, things like that. These uh, the you know, UFOs, we you know saw a bunch of videos come out in the past couple of years. So, but this is dividing uh, UFOologists, let's say, uh, the activists on the, really trying to uncover what's out there. Yeah, we have a great story on NBCNews.com from a reporter on my team, Alex Seitzwald, looking at this fight. So you're right. There's been a big push to sort of legitimize the study of UFOs, especially after we saw these pilots produce videos, these Air Force pilots of things that no one could explain how they were moving or doing that. Here's the office. Gillibrand has got it into the bill that was signed into law right before New Year's. And now it's really dividing people who believe uh, some who think this is an attempt by the government to cover it up, that they've put this office in the Pentagon that is going to classify all of this information that's going to make it less public than it has been, and that they're going to put a clamp down. But others, advocates for more research, more public transparency, see, you know, this is actually a good thing. This is dedicated staff, dedicated funding to look into this. And even some non-believers think this is a good thing because many of them argue what we're seeing and what is showing up on these videos is actually technology from rival nations. And that regardless of what it is, extraterrestrial or terrestrial, we need to be researching this and figuring out what these things are that we don't know or explain. The military, for their part, they're focused on things like drones, these new technology, things flying into restricted airspace, and even written into part of the bill and, and as part of the office, you know, when they find these things, they're going to look into it, do research and see if they can replicate some of that technology too. So, uh, I mean, this is the more real world terms of it, but, but you're right. Uh, you know, the, the people hoping for aliens are, are saying, you know, we want some more civilian input into this. So that way, you know, hopefully they don't cover things up as you were saying. They want to be able to see what's happening behind the scenes. 
And the government has sort of maintained whatever it is they have to, for security reasons, sort of take the approach that the military does. But I think that we've really seen a sea change in discussions about unidentified flying objects or UAPs, as they call them now, right. um, unidentified aerial phenomenons. And I, I would be surprised if there's the, the clampdown that they're they're expecting. I'm all for it. I love some good UFO talk. Uh, let's move on to... Uh, coronavirus and the Omicron variant, it's spreading all over the place. The White House is going to be shipping out free at-home COVID tests via the Postal Service. I think they pledged to send out 500 million. They should be shipping out sometime this month, but it's going to take a little while before all of them go out. And it's going to be done through a, a government-run website. I, you got to like request them there. So I don't think anyone in America at this point is that without someone they know that's caught the Omicron wave, it's been so large these last few weeks and had an impossible time finding home tests. There are people just scouring the stores for them and they're not available. So this is supposed to help address some of that issue and to help address spread when people can test at home, can test preemptively, then they'll know that they're infected. But we're still looking at some potential huge logistical hurdles. Keep in mind the federal government hasn't always had smooth rollout of things like websites <laughs> and getting 500 million tests distributed across the country. That's an enormous logistical undertaking. So we know that they've awarded some contracts. We know that they're going to work through the postal service, but I would be shocked having watched the federal government if this happens quickly. If it does, wonderful. But I, we're going to see this rollout and this effort to get them out. Hopefully there won't be another wave, but maybe they'll be out in yeah. time for the next. And in the meantime, you know, tons of people, as you mentioned, are coming down with COVID again. Uh, the Omicron variant is so transmissible right now. And the latest worry is the disruption to businesses and services. So, you know, people get sick. They have to call out. They have to be quarantined for a number of days. They can't work. And, you know, we have first responders, hospitals, schools, government agencies. They all have people out sick and they're all hands on deck and they're worried that, you know, they might not be able to keep it up for, for very long. We really are seeing the stress in the medical community where nurses, doctors, aides, other people that would keep a hospital or doctor's office running are contracting the disease. They're spreading it within their units, their coworkers, because it's so transmissible and that's causing real problems. But it's not just the health industry. We're talking about anyone that is required to be in person, grocery stores, other essential services, type of retail that we are accustomed to being. And so I think it's not going to be surprising in the coming weeks to see stores to see services hobbled slower restaurants that don't have the staff even after already grappling to not have enough staff right. as people try to get through this wave we're still seeing evidence that it's not as uh, dangerous it's not as serious as past waves but even with that it can really cripple things whenever people have to stay home and and are, are, are dealing with this virus yeah in la more than 800 police and firefighters are out in new york the mta has 1300 people out so you know, this is what uh, people are worried about, disruption to any of those services. Uh, and, and finally, just looking ahead to this week, on Tuesday, President Biden's going to be heading to Georgia to talk about voting rights legislation. Um, this is all fresh off of his big speech uh, about the January 6th Capitol riots. And, you know, they see Georgia as ground zero in this effort to fight for voting legislation. But there's going to be uh, they need to have big changes to the filibuster rules in, in order for any of this to pass. That's right. Some Democrats in Congress really wanted President Biden to talk about this voting bill on January 6th. He opted not to, gave a very fiery speech 
criticizing Donald Trump uh, for pushing lies about the 2020 election, but stayed away from the voting legislation that is very partisan. And frankly, as you pointed out, would require changes to the filibuster that they don't have the votes for. So still rather unlikely to happen, but he's going to go give this speech in Georgia, try to rally some support. But the real point is that they're unlikely to get West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin to change his mind about the filibuster. And that means that these voting bills, these attempts to sort of roll back some more restrictive measures that have been passed by Republicans in the states, not likely to happen. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One of the stats that really shocked me when I saw it was that the rate of COVID hospitalizations of dialysis patients early on the pandemic was 40 times higher than the general population. Joining us now is Dua Eldeeb, reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Dua. Thanks for having me on. I want to talk about an interesting article you wrote for ProPublica about the pandemic's perfect victims. We're talking about dialysis patients. You know, so we we know already that people with comorbidities obviously usually get the worst effects of COVID-19. You know, it affects them in a lot of different ways. But for those that are on dialysis, there's so many complicated things that go into it. You know, having to go to a dialysis center, obviously the comorbidities that go with, you know, having to be on dialysis itself. And what we ended up seeing as, you know, more and more people get diabetes and get these things that, you know, need this type of treatment the pandemic, we had so many deaths of dialysis patients that the total number of them actually shrank for the first time in nearly half a century, which is just incredible to think of it that way, is that the only reason why that number shrank is because so many of them died. So Dua, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with all this. You're exactly right. And it's quite devastating. You know, when I started reporting on this, I knew very little about dialysis or the potential effects that the pandemic could have on them. And the more I learned about it, the more shocking it was. You know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were able to delay care. You know, they didn't go into the hospital for elective procedures. They didn't leave their homes if they could help it. But dialysis patients just didn't have that option. So for people, you know, when I started, like I said, I didn't know much about dialysis, but basically these are patients who have end-stage renal disease, which means that their kidneys are so damaged, they can't filter the toxins in their blood. So they have to go be on like uh, dialysis, have a dialysis machine, actually clear their blood, cleanse their blood from those toxins. And most patients who go to a facility and most dialysis patients do in-center dialysis you know, have to go there three times a week and they stay for three to four hours. And a lot of patients take public transportation, some kind of medical van transportation. They're, you know, get there, they go with strangers. And once they're there, they're there with multiple people in a large room. So they can't self-isolate. And they were doing this three times a week at the very beginning of the pandemic, and they're already immunocompromised because of their end-stage renal disease. So it's just multiple layers of risk for these people who are just trying to get this life-saving treatment. One of the stats that really shocked me when I saw it was that the rate of COVID hospitalizations of dialysis patients early on the pandemic was 40 times higher than the general population. I think that there tells you all you need to know about how risky it was. Yeah, you know, I actually have a friend who was a nurse in a dialysis center. And a lot of the stories that we would talk about 
ring perfectly true and in accordance with what you wrote in your article and just kind of the difficulty. You know, you were talking about the treatment and how they have to report three times a week to get their treatments and all. And one of the big results is a lot of people started dropping off. They started skipping their treatments uh, because of the difficulties you laid out, right? Um, you know, the transportation, having to sit around with a bunch of people. And that was one of the main things that that my friend saw and he would tell me about too, just dropouts. People just wouldn't report. And then, you know, they come in a few days later, a few days late, and they're doing really bad at that point. You know, why this treatment is just such a life-saving treatment is because they have to get it. They can't go. These patients, you know, can't miss more than two or three sessions, you know, sometimes even one session before things turn really bad, before the fluid builds up in their body, before the toxins take over. And so, you know, I, I ran earlier in the year about how the pandemic had really affected cancer screening and cancer diagnoses, and people were delaying going to get their, you know, annual mammograms or just their regular checkups for cancer. And that was devastating. The national organization that tracks cancer health was expecting an increase over the next decade of 10,000 excess deaths because of people who had delayed care and who weren't coming in to get their screenings. What the dialysis population saw was an increase of 18,000 deaths just wow. last year alone in excess deaths. So deaths that they weren't expecting because of the pandemic. And like you said, a big part of that was they weren't able to go and they were too afraid of going in and, and contracting the, the virus. There was one story that a doctor told me in California that just broke my heart. It was a, you know an older patient who went to the hospital because he had difficulty breathing. Doctors diagnosed him with end-stage renal disease. And they said, look, like you need to come in for dialysis three times a week. And he was really hesitant. But once he realized that this is what's going to save his life, he agreed. But his wife was also at home and she had cancer. He was taking care of her and he was so afraid to leave her, so afraid to get COVID and come back and give it to her that he would skip his treatments once and then twice. And then finally, you know, he skipped it too many times that he died. You know, one of the things that you explore in the article is about how few people really took notice of what was happening to these dialysis patients. Obviously, everybody was concerned with a lot of other stuff. You know, we're in this pandemic a few years now. So now we have some data that's built up and we can kind of go back and see what was happening. But one of the things that really impacted a lot of this, too, was the effect on the facilities themselves. You know, investigations by the federal government dropped, you know, a lot of personnel issues, you know, uh, delays because of the pandemic. I, you know, I get all that stuff. But there's, you know, a lot of complaints that were happening at these facilities inspections were going down, lack of funding, you know, all of this stuff kind of contributed to this. You're right again. I mean, and I think that's something that like, you know, we haven't really focused on. And when you look at these facilities, you know, I will say that what I heard over and over is that dialysis facilities were quick to mask and to screen patients. They put in kind of screening and isolation protocols early on in the pandemic so that people who were suspected or confirmed to have COVID were treated in, you know, either a separate shift or, you know, a, a specially designated clinic just for these. But there were still some facilities that didn't follow their own infection control policies. You know, they weren't washing their hands properly. They weren't keeping workers home and sick. They weren't disinfecting equipment. And those are just the facilities that we know about. But like you said, you know, the federal officials are behind on their inspections. So they're two years overdue on more than 5,000 inspections at dialysis 
facilities, they're three years behind on more than 3,000. And what we found is that since the start of last year, the number of inspections across the board at dialysis facilities fell by 30%. So it just makes you wonder, what else do we not know? Yeah. I, you know, going back to my friend who who's a nurse at a dialysis center, you know, he would talk to me about some of the difficulties they had, too, in following some of those policies, even for the patients themselves, right? You know, mask wearing is mandatory, but, you know, they get uncomfortable. And when you're sitting there getting dialysis for a few hours, it's tough. And so he'd say, you know, sometimes uh, patients would take their masks off. Sometimes they'd show up sick and you know, then they'd have to go through that process of refusing them care. You know, they'd have to report to a hospital so they can get their treatments. So, you know, just stories of how difficult it was to navigate all that. And so the next question is, how do we fix a lot of this stuff? We spend a lot of federal money on this through Medicare. The spending is, you know, is very high in all of this stuff. But what do we, what are they looking for to, to how to remedy some of these things? That's a great question. I wish I had an answer to. Yeah, I mean, Medicare spends, you know, more than $50 billion on patients with end-stage renal disease. Uh, it's an outsized portion of, of their budget, but we're still having so much death, so much illness. And, you know, a lot of dialysis patients, you know, they, they basically are on dialysis until, you know, their hope is to get a kidney transplant. But that's only 30% of the total ESRD population, patients with end-stage renal disease, were able to get a kidney transplant. And, you know, one of the problems, one of the main problems is racial disparities. You see that in who is more likely to advance to end-stage renal disease, who is less likely to get a transplant, who is less likely to even be on home dialysis. And, you know, as I'm sure you can guess, these are, you know, Patients of color, black patients, Latino patients are the ones who are less likely time and time again. So I think, you know, it starts with addressing those disparities. One of the kind of beacons of hope that I'm hearing from people is home dialysis, which isn't, you know, it's, you know, by no means easy, but it is at least, you know, what I'm hearing kind of a hopefully a more convenient way for patients to receive dialysis. A lot of them can receive it at home while they're sleeping. But again, the disparities there are really bad. And so federal officials are trying to address that. They're trying to increase reimbursement. They passed an initiative, you know, back in 2019 to try to address this. So, I mean, I think that's that's something on the board that they're working toward, but it's going to take time. I think, you know, more immediately, especially with, you know, the new variant is boosters. One of the epidemiologists that I spoke to was saying that, you know, he really hopes that if another round of boosters are approved, that dialysis patients are prioritized because when the first, you know, vaccines came out, it took three months before they were delivered to dialysis facilities. And that's where, like we said, right. patients are going three times a week. So if you want to get them boosted, take it to their places of treatment. Right. So I think that's something to, to consider as well. Dua LD, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for caring about this issue and for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.